Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about making contact. I want to start today with a couple of quotes and then lay a little bit of groundwork because my thoughts are really and truly kind of scattered all over on this particular topic. So I think it might help me to ground myself a little bit by at least introducing the different drummer right up front, if in no other way in words. The majority of us lead quiet, unheralded lives as we pass through this world. There will most likely be no ticker tape parades for us, no monuments created in our honor. But that does not lessen our possible impact, for there are scores of people waiting for someone just like us to come along, people who will appreciate our compassion, our unique talents, someone who will live a happier life merely because we took the time to share what we had to give. Too often we underestimate the power of a touch, a smile, a kind word, a listening ear, an honest compliment, or the smallest act of caring all of which have the potential to turn a life around. It's overwhelming to consider the continuous opportunities there are to make our love felt. That's our different drummer today, Leo F. Biscaglia, and I'll get to him a little later in the show. But first, I want to start with some musical lyrics, which will tie into the body of the making contact topic, the actual nostalgia piece of this inappropriate conversation. Because these words by Peter Gabriel served as the inspiration for that particular event in my life and the essay that it inspired. The time I like is the rush hour, because I like the rush. The pushing of the people, I like it all so much. Such a mass of motion, do not know where it goes. I move with the movement, and I have the touch. I'm waiting for ignition, I'm looking for a spark, Any chance collision, and I light up in the dark. There you stand before me, all that fur and all that hair. Oh, do I dare. I have the touch. Wanting contact. I'm wanting contact. I'm wanting contact with you. Shake those hands. Shake those hands. Give me the thing I understand. Any social occasion, it's, hello, how do you do? All those introductions... I never miss my cue. So, before a question, so, before a doubt, my hand moves out, and I have the touch. These words by Peter Gabriel, expressing musically the idea of how powerful and important it is to have physical contact, even the most benign and simple thing as a handshake, to break the, you know, the monotony of loneliness, and to for one, you know, for a brief moment, if only for a brief moment, dismiss the question that some people feel more powerfully than others. Am I real? Am I here? Is this all happening to me? So as I get into this sort of, you know, I'm going to call it an existential topic. I think that's probably an accurate way of putting it. I want to begin by looking first off at some Venn diagrams in life. And look at it from the perspective of social media. And I know I've mentioned this before, particularly on episode 100, 
looking back at the origins of this particular show, Inappropriate Conversations, and I've had a few online conversations here recently in social media like Facebook and Twitter that has called to my attention how important it is to sort of have these dialogues from time to time, to not just look nostalgically back into the past, but also to assess kind of where things are currently. And there are so many circles that I don't have time today to draw them all. But if I egotistically placed myself in the center of this particular diagram and then started drawing circles. Well, I might want to start with Stitcher. Inappropriate Conversations is on Stitcher and Stitcher Smart Radio is one of the ways that I listen to podcasts. There'll be several podcasts that I mention this way that are on Stitcher and it might be the second or third most important way I do podcast listening. There's uh, obviously I'm a user of a particular MP3 software, so I get most of my podcasts downloaded directly to my Zoom device that way. And I'm going to mention Simply Syndicated here in a minute because they've changed their business model, and that's an important shift. But first, just if I think in terms of things that are available on Stitcher, because for me, it's more important that I listen that way. It's nice that my show is on Stitcher, and I think that's a convenience that some people may be able to take advantage of, which is great, because that's what I do. I listen to the JV Club on Stitcher. I listen to Secretly Timid on Stitcher. Uh, other examples would be uh, Game Night Guys, Greeting from, Greetings from Nowhere, Masters of None, Take Him With You, Anomaly. You begin drawing these sort of circles over and over again. And what happens to me that's interesting is there are overlaps. Now, some of these overlaps are going to be obvious. I may not be aware of a show like Secretly Timid if I'm not listening to Greetings from Nowhere first. And I'm not aware of Greetings from Nowhere if it weren't for somebody listening to my show who also listened to shows on Simply Syndicated. And so it always sort of surprises me if I go to a to the Facebook page, perhaps for Game Night Guys, and see that somebody that I've already friended, perhaps somebody that I've met through just shared interest in a certain podcast – have also drawn their circle over there because sometimes it's not a lot of people. There may only be one or two friends of mine who overlap on listening to a particular show, despite the fact that listening to podcasts is something that we have in common. There are so many. Uh, author Christian Pyatt put a statistic out, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm not going to get it right. But it wasn't much more than a decade ago that the entire realm of the blogosphere was only something like 15 to 20, maybe 23 total blogs online. And now it's a very crowded and very specific marketplace. And I think that's a good thing that it's crowded and specific. I was more shocked that you didn't have to go back more than 15 years to get to the point where there were less than 25 blogs on the Internet. And now, of course, we've got this proliferation, which on one level is you know massive and confusing and, and challenging and difficult to comprehend. But on the other level, it does make it possible for something to speak as directly to you as possible. None of this, of course, includes you know, specific sort of podcasts, like podcasts for a church where they're putting out their either their entire worship service or their weekly sermon, or podcasts for a specific sports team. So if you follow a certain university or professional team, there's perhaps, maybe more likely than not, in fact, a podcast for you in that avenue as well. But to me, it's interesting how narrow the range can be and yet how massively complex this diagram itself is. One of the things that I think makes Simply Syndicated so important to me is that for a while I felt like I was personally being my own archivist, keeping a hold of things, having an external hard drive, having discs, some that I purchased, some that I made of shows that I didn't want to lose or didn't want to lose track of. And now what Simply Syndicated has done at www.simplysyndicated.com 
is transform their website into simply everything. Now, there's a positive and a negative here, and I'm going to freely share my thoughts on both. The positive is that a lot of these shows that had been gone, or at least potentially very difficult to find, are now back. So if I've mentioned programs like The Definitive Word and their episode on plastic surgery, that's now available. It's on the website at simplysyndicated.com. It may mean that you need to subscribe to get certain content. Some of the subscription content is brand new. Some of the subscription content is quite old. To me, the subscription is well worth it. If you've never heard the, uh, the life cycle of the program movies you should see, uh, subscription is a great way to do that. And most of movies you should see, the Definitive Word and other programs, are up on this site. Do Ask, Do Tell is a podcast series that has a handful of episodes that are already out there, but they've already recorded more that are going to be available for initially for subscription content. And that's one of the better programs about issues related to gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual, those sort of that sort of issue you know, with people who are speaking either genuinely from the perspective of ignorance. I was on the show once speaking, at least when the LGBTQ perspective from a perspective of ignorance or from you know, people who actually are, are sharing their own personal experience. I'm looking forward to more from that show. But the other show that I'm looking the most forward to and its return eventually its return is hooked because this idea, this sharing the lyrics of a Peter Gabriel song online with friends first happened because of the show hooked. And it was really that one episode called relaxation techniques of this show focused on harm reduction and interacting with, uh, with drug users and, you know, techniques that you can use as a drug user to resist the, uh, the temptation, the habit, the habituation of drug use. It was that episode on relaxation techniques that clicked with me and said, Hey, I've got an essay in my own past about the power of touch. Even for somebody who, unlike that Buscaglia quote I shared at the beginning, maybe you know, wasn't on the ledge, wasn't in need of intervention, wasn't you know, feeling non-existent in any way, but still the power of touch in terms of changing perspectives and connecting with people. And one of the things that that particular episode of Hooked talked about was that sometimes when you're dealing with somebody where the relationship is such that it's okay for you to ask, hey, can I, can I touch your hand? Can I hold your hand? Can I touch you? Well, sometimes the answer to that question is going to be no. And I think no matter what role you play in society, particularly a role where you're interacting with the public as a public servant, you've got to respect no as an answer. But when the answer is yes, uh, that's not something you want to hesitate about because that alone has a direct relaxation impact on people. It's a stress reduction thing, just being in contact with other folks. The Hooked show from you know two three years ago now really called that out and being online and being part of simply syndicated's community of listeners made it possible you know a few again a few years ago to just reach into their forum community and speak to it i mentioned that the new launched simply everything version of simply syndicated.com has one negative and the one negative is that social media has evolved to such an extent that the online forum community that was so crucial and such a vibrant piece of the simply syndicated world just even a year or two ago has now become less and less relevant. And now this website is more about connecting with the shows, listening to content, streaming the content and a subscription based model, not for all of it, but for some of it, 
and uh, the new information that's available, the new shows that are coming out, not uh, streaming one show at a time, but perhaps there's going to be a point where there'll be the ability to get several shows all at once that when Make It So is fully returned, there'll be you know at least a half dozen, maybe more like a dozen shows, new shows all available at once for somebody who has the ability to stream. And you know, the world has changed in the last couple of years. We've got more iPads and other tablet-related tools than ever before. Our phones, by and large, through tools like Stitcher, can dial into a lot of shows, and you can listen to a show on your phone driving down the road or walking down the street. It's a different animal. It doesn't necessarily require sitting at a desk behind a, a stack out of a, of a PC. You can be more portable than a laptop, even. And for that reason... The way we engage with each other on social media has shifted. This is obviously true for me. One of the number one reasons that I've left every single episode, including the initial sound experiments, the sound quality challenge shows, is that I feel like even where those shows have moments which are you know really you know difficult, where you can tell that there's a learning curve being played out, I've left them there because I think that learning curve is an important document of sorts. And one of the things that these old shows document is the point before I was on Facebook at all to when I decided to do that. More than a year later, the point before I was on Twitter and then when I decided to do that. And a lot of that has evolved in a very organic way. And as I've taken those steps, it hasn't been because I was choosing in any way to de-emphasize any role I might have played in an online forum like those found at Simply Syndicated before the recent change. It was simply the reality that that is where people had shifted their attention, that the people I wanted to interact with, I could interact with in other ways. Uh, whereas at first, you know, four, five, six years ago, the way I was interacting with them would have been through that particular forum. That was the only particular output. So that's changed. I'm making contact with folks in different ways and in more ways than I ever dreamed that I might have. It's really less, less about email less about any sort of online forum. I've joined two in my life, and I'm inactive on both of them now, which surprises me a little bit. But I'm more active on Facebook and Twitter than I probably ever thought I would be. And certainly, if you listen to Inappropriate Conversations 32, uh, I believe called Recollections, My Memory Serves Me Far Too Well would have been the subtitle, <laughs> the subscript for it. It does sort of reveal sort of that moment when I when I put my foot in the water. And just to call back to it a little bit, one of the things that I mentioned at the time, and I think it was a relevant thing to talk about at the time, was that there's these, there was, I was talking about circles then as well from the perspective of social media, that there's the people that you interact with directly, the people you see, friends, neighbors, coworkers. There's the people that you don't get to see anymore who are still part of you. They're part of your memory. You're walking through life with them. And then there's this online presence where at the time I might have been referring to people that I'd never met before. And some of them I've subsequently met in person. And some of them I haven't, and some of them it seems like maybe I never will. And how those sort of lines were intersecting then, well, my Venn diagram was much more simple back then. Back then it was shows that either were already part of Simply Syndicated's network or shows that were about to become part of Simply Syndicated's network. And, you know, if you think about syndicated being spelled with a Y, it's being spelled properly, a group of people that I think some of us still refer to each other as sinners, S-Y-N-N-E-R-S. So you've got sort of these, these lines where at some point 
it's easy to pinpoint your individuality on there because there at some point is a circle where I am the only person who's consuming this combination of media in this particular way. But you don't have to take any great move from the center of that page to find various and varying different kinds of connections, ways in which people have made contact online. Now, if there's one purpose to this show, it may be to call into question whether or not making contact online is enough. And increasingly, it seems to me that it's probably not enough, that I've had enough positive experiences with these face-to-face contacts that I'm more willing to engineer them than I ever was before. And I was one of the first people who was part of that simply syndicated community, at least in the North American side, to say, let's look for these opportunities to get together. Let's try to leverage this if we can. And of course, it's hard because some of these friends and listeners live in California or Washington and Oregon or, you know, you know, places fairly far off. And even people who live relatively close to where I might have other friends and family, uh, North Texas, for example, or parts of Oklahoma and Kansas. Yeah, it's not necessarily easy for me to make a trip there, and it certainly can't be the – it seems unlikely that it would be the number one thing on the agenda. But you just never know because there are these moments where these sort of anniversaries, these sort of events come to mind. And Facebook does this, I think, better than anything else in terms of out of the blue getting a friend request from somebody and responding to that and have more of their world open up to you, either because you didn't really think to look for them on Facebook, or if you'd looked casually before, you know, there's only some parts of their uh, Facebook page that's visible to somebody who's just part of the public. And I've always been willing to leave myself just part of the public. It's a rare thing that I actually send a friend request to somebody, but it's also a rare thing that I don't confirm them. I usually say yes. The only ones I don't say yes to are the ones that clearly they're not talking to me. I'm not the right Greg for them. But if I know the individual, if we've got a shared experience, whether classmates or previous jobs or what have you, I will tend to say yes to that. If only because I don't expect to agree with everybody that I encounter online. And so it's, there's no litmus test that anybody has to pass, I suppose. And part of that is that I just see the value in making contact. I've been surprised by it, I think, in positive ways. So let me set the quick stage for a story, and I'll kind of cover the story from the perspective of both the negative things that can happen when people that you've met in your past, that you've encountered in the past, you you lose sight of them. This is a a running theme in inappropriate conversations, and it's going to come back. It's, It's part of who I am. To have had a powerful connection with people that you don't see anymore is challenging, and that's something that I deal with. On the other hand, I also have made stronger than I would have expected connections with people that I had never met and would not see again, where in a span of two and a half days, you can go from strangers to people who have a shared experience that can linger, in this case, 25 years into the future. So after a quick break, let me talk through what I mean by making contact. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. 
The Anomaly Podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your Anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at AnomalyPodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y Podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by JewelBeat.com About a year into my journalism career, I was somewhat surprised that I was being sent to a conference. I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't know whether this was a perk for having done good work, preparation for some future challenge or future assignment, or maybe some remedial kind of learning that needed to be done. It wasn't made clear to me. I think part of the answer was on the positive side, future challenges, you know, maybe a bigger role on the editorial page. And this was something that I had to accomplish first. So it wasn't necessarily preparation for a guaranteed job change or job expansion. But at the same time, it wasn't a negative sort of a, a remedial learning situation either. And I wasn't really prepared at all. It was the first time maybe as a non-student as a professional, that I'd ever been sent off to one of these sorts of things. And when I got there, it was it occurred in Oklahoma City in 1988. And when I got there, I was also surprised to find out just where other people had come from. Because with the exception of maybe one speaker that I'd seen before as one of my university professors, these were all going to be strangers to me. They came from places like Louisiana and Texas, which if you think that there's going to be a conference in Oklahoma, you'd expect to be drawing from places like Kansas, Missouri, and Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, New Mexico. But there was also people from far, as far away as Virginia attending this conference, a two-and-a-half-day seminar, just dealing with you know questions related to journalism. And I'd gone there essentially as a journalist, and it was a funny thing for me because I had always been a good student, so I was capable of going there with pen and paper and being a student. But I also was kind of going there as a journalist. I really wasn't sure whether when the the whole conference experience was over, was I going to be writing a story and recapping? Was I going to be transcribing my notes and reporting back to my to my editors? Or was this well and truly just for me? So I went to this conference with kind of two sets of notepads to work with. One was my reporter notepad, which I was using for very personal purposes. And the other one was the same kind of spiral notebook you might take with you if you were taking a course of some sort. And it did clearly seem that this was going to be more of a coursework approach. And therefore, whatever I did with the reporter notepad was strictly for my own use. And a couple of things happened in the conference that I thought were fairly interesting. One was there was a learning opportunity with... You got to imagine this is 1988, so you're you're essentially pre-internet, at least from a, a newspaper perspective. We had some tools that you could use to cross a large network of newspapers, but it wasn't anywhere near 
like what we would call the internet today. It was essentially wire-based communication. If you think of AP wire, UPI wire, that sort of thing. And email, but very provisional uh, in terms of how that worked. At that time, I had worked in a reverse directory for my own hometown. But I don't think I'd ever been in a newspaper's library uh, like the size of the one of the Daily Oklahoman that was big enough to have had reverse phone directories for basically the 100 largest cities in America. And I took advantage of that to say, hey, I've got a friend. We've lost touch. It's hurtful in some ways that the connection that we had in college has not transcribed into our professional lives. And I may want to give this person a phone call. Now, the person I'm referring to is Spider. There are previous inappropriate conversations to talk in some detail about the backstory there. If I drop numbers of past inappropriate conversations, it would be number 44, number 80, that, that sort of thing. But this gave me an opportunity to say, hey, I know a major metropolitan city. I know first name. I know last name. Let's see if we can get this phone number and then decide what to do with it. Is there going to be an opportunity to get together at some point? Just to even ask the question, hey, are we... Are we going to continue to communicate? Because during the last year of college for Spider and the first year that I was out in the field, it was a letter-based exchange, which you'd expect that was the standard of the time. But that never really turned into any sort of telephone-based communication. Now that we were both out in the real world and capable of paying long-distance long rates, seems kind of ironic to be talking about paying long-distance. It's a, it's a bygone concept. But now able to pay long-distance rates, making enough money and being enough – Having enough independence to do that, well, I needed the phone number. And I had written those phone numbers down in this spiral notebook. But the spiral notebook was also being used by me and the new people that I'd met. And the new people that I met at this conference included somebody named Peg and somebody made, I'm going to call him Jay, just to perhaps changing the name to protect the innocent just a little bit. But Peg and Jay I'd met. We'd made a good connection. We'd had some interesting parallels in terms of our careers and some things that we were kind of going through in terms of what was going to be next for us. Was was newspapers the long-term answer or was it not the long-term answer? And so I had some of their name address type information. We'd also been writing notes. The ones that weren't the notes about the coursework, but more the notes about the people leading the coursework or some of our fellow attendees, uh, comments about, you know, perhaps fashion choices that people had made or what we were going to do, were we going to swing out and get a six-pack one night and, and have a few drinks once the coursework was over? One night, we actually went to the movies. I think it ended up being four or five of us. We just, on our own, just sort of made this completely impulsive decision to try to get to a movie theater in a shopping mall with enough time to catch the 10 o'clock shows. And we did this. And the only 10 o'clock shows that we could find, the only one that really made sense to attend was Phantasm 2. Now, I'm going to refer to Don Coscarelli's Phantasm series of films as a guilty pleasure. And the reason I'm going to refer to them that way is that I'm not the biggest horror fan in the world. And I have enough knowledge of filmmaking and film history to see that, you know, this really isn't necessarily the greatest franchise ever. On, on paper, I understand that the Halloween franchise perhaps has, you know, more historical film significance than the Phantasm franchise. But part of the reason that Phantasm stuck with me is because of Phantasm 2 and the sort of mystical relationship communicated in the film, kind of driving the plot of the film between the young male character who overlapped from the previous movie, the first Phantasm, and a female character that gets introduced for the first time and is really a central part of what happens in Phantasm 2. There's what Carl Jung might have described 
is an animatic relationship between those characters. And that really resonated with me. But truthfully, if you'd asked me, hey, of all the films showing, rank them and pick the number, the highest ranked one you can to see. I don't know if Phantasm 2 would have made the top 10. It just had the distinction of having a 10 o'clock show start time on a Monday night. So we went to the movies. And afterward, with me driving, uh, still an unfamiliar city in a pre-GPS era, but having some sense of kind of how to get from the hotel to this particular mall and back, we chanced across a, a game, uh, a school baseball game or softball game being played at some open community park at what had to have been 1145 at night, maybe even midnight. Now, this was a summertime event. We're talking about the month of July. But it just seemed incongruous to me that there could actually be a league that was being played by student-aged kids. You know, it might have been high school, junior high school, but it wasn't like an adult league that was carrying on into the wee hours of the morning. Again, this was a game that that could have ended somewhere between midnight and 1 a.m. as far as I could tell, because we were so intrigued, maybe as reporters or maybe just as common citizens, by the fact that there was actually going to be some sort of community softball game still going on or baseball game. So we um, we pulled into that park, parked the car, went into the bleachers to watch. And at some point during the, the period of watching this game on the bleachers, I was sitting on the front row one or two people with me, a couple people behind me. And the two who were behind me were Peg and Jay. And Peg and Jay had hit it off. And it was fairly apparent that night. It became more apparent the next day and a half as the as our experience at this conference sort of wrapped up. And one of the things that it just dawned on me, I'd never really seen it before with my own two eyes, but I it never occurred to me that you would go to one of these conferences and have any sort of hookup with anybody occasionally you'll meet people that you've known through networking or whatever who still do this to this day. And it rather, I don't want to say it offends me, but it's not my cup of tea. It's not the way I would spend my time. Now, part of that is the nature of the commitment in my relationship. And that's part of the story as well, because Peg and Jay were in a completely different situation. He was single and she was separated. So divorce was inevitable already. And this was, I think without knowing for sure, the formation of that new relationship. Now, our communication didn't stop here. I'm going to get through this essay in a minute, and it clearly reveals that there was a question I needed to ask both Peg and Jay, having misplaced something and hoping that one of them had picked it up and could send it back to me. And although they didn't have the missing notebook that I really desperately wanted to return to me, we did exchange a few other pieces of information. We talked a little bit about uh, modern poetry. And so we'd exchanged uh, things, you know, books and whatnot that we had that were of interest to us. Uh, things from uh, William S. Burroughs and Jim Carroll, for example, and music. And one of the musical topics that we latched onto and that we kind of had a shared interest in was the Smiths. I'd indicated to Peg that I'd I'd been a very big fan of the U.S. release of Louder Than Bombs, and particular for the song Half a Person. And she told me that if I really liked Half a Person, then I'd probably like the Morrissey solo album. At, time, at the time, Viva Hate was the only solo album he'd had a chance to produce. And I was very skeptical, because first off, to me, the, the band had broken up, and I was having a hard time dealing with that. But the first time I'd heard the tracks from Viva Hate was because she'd put them on a cassette and, and sent them to me in the mail. I, of course, later bought the CD and then even later than that bought MP3s. But it was that first moment of contact to say, hey, 
I hear what you're saying. I know, you, I know you've got some pain. You've got some memories that were so good that the powerful goodness of those memories makes them a bit of, of a throbbing pain in some ways because you've become disconnected from parts of your past that you thought would always be there. And she says, hey, that's, that's Late Night Maudlin Street. That's Morrissey's album. You've got to hear this. And Peg made a way of making that happen. But the most important thing, the most bizarre part of it anyway, bizarre enough that, hey, I ended up going to a horror movie first run. That's not like me. And then stopping for a softball or baseball game being played by people we didn't know. More intrigued that they were just playing in the middle of the night. So it led us to, to have this interest. But the reason that I knew that Peggy and Jay were making this connection to each other was because Peg was riding on my back. It was, it, was a, it was a strange moment. I could make out initials like P and either G or O and J, and it seemed to me that they were having a, a nonverbal conversation about the connection that they felt between each other. And I was, in many ways, the whiteboard or the chalkboard for that talk. So with that background information and understanding the sort of emotional, sort of emo outlook I was having... The first time in this professional way that I'd you know, been away from my wife or my family or my friends for any extended period of time and having, you know, some of you, when you take those young, those youngian sort of tests where you either find out what kind of bird you would be or find out what you are on a introvert, extrovert scale, I always waffle a lot between the E and the I. So I can be ENTP or INTJ. But more often than fluctuating on the last digit, I'm almost always fluctuating on the first digit. And whether I score as introverted or extroverted depends entirely upon the mindset I'm asked to bring to the questions that you answer that kind of fuel those results. So kind of right on that line between which one you are. And really, at a conference like this, I didn't know what to expect from myself much less what to expect from others. And if you told me that I made that kind of a powerful connection with two people, and it could have been more, but even with just two people, it really would have surprised me in some ways. And the essay, I think, is a reflection of that surprise, written almost 25 years ago, at least it'll be 25 years ago this summer. And I started it off with the quote from Peter Gabriel, shake those hands, shake those hands, give me the thing I understand from Peter Gabriel's security album and the song, I Have the Touch. Perhaps my thoughts on the just-completed seminar in Oklahoma City go without saying. If not, time will pass before I'll be able to properly assimilate the events and determine how they will impact my future. I left it there. And if it were merely scattered thoughts and insults backed by blank pages, then I would have nothing more to think about it. Yet there's more. My holdover connection with Spider, in the form of an agenda, lies bare on the cover. The dream about my fears of being too late to start again also covers the scattered thoughts and insults. Further back is the number, holding the answers to the questions I don't have the nerve to ask. I saw it on the table, and that's the last time it was in my possession. I left part of myself, including directions to my soul, and I can't get away from conjecture about who picked it up or whether my last-ditch effort has been trashed like the penultimate ones. Did she pick it up? In some manner, did I subconsciously leave it with her? If so, why? If not, will the accident be reported? My telephone number is on the cover, below at least initials or my last name. Plus, since she and Jay 
helped build the transitional page between the hell dream and the savior numbers. Figuring out who left the fingerprints on her imagination won't demand serious detective work. Most vitally, what does it mean? What does it mean if I get a call about it? Will she ask the questions she should? Or what if I have to write? And killer stumbling block, what if I don't get a reply? Monday, the film proved to be the calling I expected in an unexpected way. Anima and animus. The company still seemed accidental for a fleeting moment. Tuesday, I found myself living in a black and white world. As if I needed help, one of the Virginians nudged me in the psychological ribs. Wish I had the nerve to wear shorts today. Get it? Wednesday. The sacrament was shared food and drink. The good Catholic who introduced me to the new communion probably didn't have beer in mind. Ice, appropriately enough, was fine with her. Does my chronology suggest I'll get a reply? I don't know. Getting a reply is a two-way street. I've gone the wrong way before, but not since Monday afternoon. I'd enjoy the freedom of choice I'm left with much more if the doubt didn't involve a piece of myself I unintentionally left behind. I just might need the spare part before I make it home. The difference between the choice of will I find out and will there be something to find out largely stems from existentialism. I really enjoyed the conversation with my wife upon returning home. While the chat didn't put everything into perspective, it offered possible perspectives that weren't at my disposal initially. And her conversation? Their conversation? Well, it's rude to ask. At the risk of sounding inconsistent, I'll say that goodbye meant something more to me Wednesday than you would expect from a citizen above suspicion. Although my anticipation lacked a necessary element of detachment, my existential doubts really required goodbye. Goodbye to Jay on the road to Texas, and goodbye to Peg on the road east. How close the moment came to being waved off. Meanwhile, this preceded the reading of any documents about answered and unanswered questions. To answer the nagging question, why? The symbolism, including but not limited to the Trinitarian chronology, gave me strong reason to doubt the reality. Without more than cursory ionic contact, I could not confirm the experience was real. It sounds pathetic. It is pathetic. Insults aside, I still don't believe that you know experiences are real until they touch you. I had been moved, but the movement was not worthy of comment until I could prove that I had been moved by touch. At the time, the only evidence was a P, and a J, and a G, and an incomplete fourth try. Leaving names aside or initials, I'm unable to discern the meaning from these clues without further investigation. Wednesday's evidence was solid enough. Taken in context, it meant something. Something very consistent with compulsive film advertising, absolute fashion value, and light beer. There is something to find out. Shyness is nice, and shyness can stop you from doing all the things in life you'd like to. Morrissey, The Smiths, the song Ask. So, I'll ask, have you seen my notebook? (music) 
There may be many reasons why I'm the kind of guy who would write a three-page essay about the strangeness of meeting new people for the first time in an otherwise somewhat anonymous environment of a journalism conference. And one of the reasons that I am that strange person is our different drummer, Leo Biscaglia. At the time I first encountered the writings of Biscaglia, probably 1982, could have been 1981, I'm going to say winter of 1981, he couldn't have had more than three books out, and only one of them would have been relevant to me. I wasn't at the time necessarily that interested in a children's book or in a travel book, but the first book he wrote back in 1972, just called Love, would have still been the most current book of its type from him. Now he has since released, you know, during his lifetime, many more books that have somewhat a similar concept to what he covered in The Material of Love, Living, Loving, and Learning, 1982, a decade later, Personhood, uh, Loving Each Other, Bus 9 to Paradise. He had more to say on the topic of love and was referred to, in some cases uh, really warmly, and in other cases perhaps pejoratively, as the love doctor. Biscaglia was a Ph.D., known as Dr. Love, and was a motivational speaker as well, but primarily he would have written those initial books while serving as a professor of the Department of Special Education for USC uh, in Southern California. He was the child of immigrants from Italy, part of a large family, and one of the things that I think he was perhaps most noteworthy for was having a non-credit course on college campuses. Now, you talk about the 1970s, and there's lots of video available for Biscaglia, so I'm not going to go into great detail about his history, and I'm not going to try to do too much to describe even his speaking style. Again, there's a video legacy available, and a lot of it is very 70s, perhaps some of it early 80s. It doesn't feel contemporary now, but the words to me are what was the most important. One of the things that inspired him, I think, to put out his initial book and to use the approach that he did was that he was responding, perhaps in some ways, to a student's suicide. While teaching at USC, quoting Wikipedia page, Biscaglia was moved by a student's suicide, and uh, he was moved to contemplate human disconnectedness and the meaning of life. So he began a non-credit class he called Love 1A. Then he, of course, has since then written numerous books. He died in June of 1998 at his home near Lake Tahoe in Nevada. He was 74 at the time. But again, in the era that we're living in, the books are still available, by and large, and YouTube makes a great variety of video available. And I think, were I to re-explore them, I didn't in preparation for this particular podcast, but I think if I were to re-explore them, they would probably still connect with me in just the same way, and by and large, for many of the same reasons. The reason I picked Muscalia for this particular show on making contact is surely obvious. His entire message is, we have got to reach people. We have got to connect with people. And as much as being known as the love doctor, his name is the hug doctor. This was somebody who believed that more important than coming and giving a motivational speech and hanging out afterward to sign autographs or sell memorabilia, what he would do after a speech is hang out afterward and hug anybody and everybody who wanted a hug, who needed physical human contact, who needed that moment of saying, yes, I am real. This is real. And a lot of times when you encounter people, even if it's a minor degree of celebrity, that's a lot of what's missing, right? Uh, you, you come away later and you say, okay, I've got, a, I've got a signature on a piece of paper, or I've got an autographed playbill or an autographed CD or something like that. Was it real? I mean, in some ways, that comes with a handshake, which again, as a celebrity, you can understand why there'd be hesitation. But if that comes with a handshake, 
it's going to be more memorable. It's going to feel more real. Among the earlier concerts that I went to, one of them, I got a chance to go to a restaurant afterward with the singer. It was an Al Stewart concert playing in a relatively small venue, which he sold out. And I think part of, part of being pleased by the crowd, pleased by the response, there were uh, enough enough space in this restaurant that they'd rented after the show that he invited a lot of people back afterward. And my, my fiance and I were one of them. And that concert experience, it was a better concert having been in the presence of the singer afterward than having had a chance to talk face to face and hear more stories than it would have been. And I typically never had those sort of backstage experiences, even when I was working in record stores and had the opportunity to get free tickets to shows. Those rarely, if ever, included that sort of any sort of backstage access. I wasn't a backstage pass kind of guy, but Biscali would bring that whole backstage experience to the front of the stage and basically just exit from the podium and stand in front of the crowd and talk to anybody who would come up to him and specifically willingly hug anyone who came up to him, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of creed, regardless of anything that people needed that human contact. That's probably nowhere near as true for the average person as it is for the elderly. And it's one of the things where, and you're talking about people who are fighting drug dependency, people who are homeless, people who are elderly, people who are dealing with issues. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can offer them to say, hey, you're real and you matter is just a simple handshake, a simple touch of finger to arm, Something to say, hey, I'm making contact, shaking hands, perhaps to quote Peter Gabriel, giving them the thing that they understand. Pull my chin, stroke my hair, scratch my nose, hug my knees, try to drink food, cigarette, tension will not ease. I tap my fingers, fold my arms, breathe in deep, cross my legs, shrug my shoulders, stretch my back, but nothing seems to please. I need contact. I need contact. Nothing seems to please. I need contact. I don't know of anybody who understood this concept better than Leo Biscaglia. I'll leave this different drummer segment with a few quotes, because I think that, if nothing else, in addition to the quote that I shared at the beginning, Biscaglia had a lot to say. You can't be an effective motivational speaker without being quote-worthy. And a lot of the things that he spoke about, some of the quotes that you'll see online, are quotes directly related to his field of education. He's dealing with special education, which there is another whole group of people who often do not get human contact because people are afraid to touch them or afraid to interact with them. And a group of people who is marginalized specifically by being different also get further marginalized by being treated differently. And Buscaglia did not believe that learning was unavailable to those types of people. Here's a couple of quotes just related to education. It is paradoxical that many educators and parents still differentiate between a time for learning and a time for play without seeing the vital connection between them. You know, you could almost translate that into the phrase learning can be fun. Learning should be fun, but fun also can be learning. Fun should be learning. Here's words that I think we need to hear in this day and age as much as we did when he wrote these words 25, 35 years ago. Change is the end result of all true learning. If you have a heart-to-heart conversation with somebody, even in a, in a scenario as simple and straightforward as a Bible study, if the result of that conversation is not some sort of change, then you didn't learn anything. Because change is how we measure what we've learned. 
says Biscayar. Here's a couple of my favorite quotes. Well, one, my favorite quote from is actually from that love book that written in 1972 that I probably first read about eight or nine years later, that love and the self are one and the discovery of either is the realization of both. Or this one. I know for certain that we never lose people we love, even to death. You can imagine why these words are encouraging to me. They continue to participate in every act, thought, and decision we make. Their love leaves an indelible imprint in our memories. We find comfort in knowing that our lives have been enriched by having shared their love. Sometimes we're separated by people in death, but sometimes we're separated from people for other reasons, and that's okay. You don't lose the imprint of that loving relationship by any form of separation, including death. My last quote from Biscaya, recalling for me the concepts that I felt I was shared with in a religious experience on Revelation weekend. Biscaya words it this way, What love we've given, we'll have forever. What love we fail to give will be lost for all eternity. It is far better to say something that should not be said than not to say something that should be said. I think that Biscalia would say to that quote of mine that that thing that you didn't say that should have been said is lost for eternity, especially if it can be accurately described as love we fail to give. If there's anything that I would cite first and foremost about Biscalia as a different drummer and about this concept of making contact is that he rejected all of the human barriers that we place on that love, being unwilling to give it, being unwilling to speak, unwilling to listen, unwilling to touch one another in appropriate ways, is all about things we're going to lose for eternity. Because there is no risk on the other side of the ledger. What love we've given, we'll have forever. Too often, Muscalia says, we underestimate the power of a touch, a smile, a kind word, a listening ear, an honest compliment, or the smallest act of caring, all of which have the potential to turn a life around. I'd be the first to acknowledge that there's something a bit sappy about the writing and the speech, even, of Buscalia. It may have been dated at the time, it perhaps is even more dated now, if that's the case. But I think sometimes it's worth the risk of being sentimental, of being dated. A lot of the things that stop us from connecting with each other are particularly those moments of insecurity. In past inappropriate conversations on these types of topics, the Moments of Epiphany show, the original um, Recollections show, I've been willing to sing. There's two, three, four times I've sung during inappropriate conversations, and, and maybe it's a missed opportunity that I didn't sing I Have the Touch, or at least parts of I Have the Touch by Peter Gabriel. The truth is, I think part of the song is just out of my range. But the other part is, I, I like the intensity of the, the words as they're read on the page. For me, it was the written words and that written essay, which I called Making Contact back then, which empowered me to turn around and write a letter, a less surreal letter than that essay, <laughs> saying, hey, did you find the notebook? 
If, if, if so, can you send it to me? Or can you just rip out the last couple of pages that have phone numbers for Kansas City, Missouri, and send me those phone numbers? Because I don't know whether I'm ever going to be around that kind of reverse directory again. Again, we take for granted how easy it is now with the Internet for us to look things up. That you don't, it doesn't require a trip to the library. It doesn't require the kind of record keeping that a good newsroom maintains. And I, of course, didn't, I struck out in that respect. I didn't get that answer. I did find out what was going on with Peggy and Jay, and we did trade some music and trade some books and, and some ideas. And a lot of those ideas have carried with me to this day. I've done a couple of poetry podcasts, for example, and the prose and poetry of people like Jim Carroll and William Burroughs, I'm still mentioning those guys. I'm still reading that material. I'm still referring to it. I still have the books. So there was a connection that was made there that was real and forward-looking and helped me at the time kind of bridge that gap between the experience that had made me the person that I was at that point and what it means to carry on when those experiences are disconnected in some ways. My Venn diagram is much more complex now than it was then. And perhaps there's strength in that. Perhaps as a website changes and its forum comes down completely, not just that it's switched to a version and updated and rebooted, but it's now gone. Well, you know, I have other options. There's Facebook. There's Twitter. There's face-to-face -face meetings that I can recall. There's the hope and promise of future face-to-face -face meetings to look forward to. There's the ability to bring my wife into those conversations in a way that's more fluid, more real again than it would be if it was just, you can sign up to the forum as well, dear, you know, that sort of situation. So, yeah, I feel like we're still living in a time of incredible tumultuous change where one day we're going to look back a couple of decades from now at this particular moment in time and marvel at how much was really happening and how quickly it was happening. But the moments that I'm going to take with me the strongest are those that have touched me in some ways, those that have moved me, that have made a difference. And here I'm very tempted to say, you know who you are. I think I, I will say it because I think those people that I would be speaking to directly should know who they are. Some of them I've never met. Some of them I never will. And some of them I look forward very much to the moment that we'll meet again, making contact. A show where Bill and Ted's excellent adventure is up against Forbidden Planet. And somebody just voted for Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Welcome to Game Fights, the Ponzi scheme of podcasting. I'm David Shaw. With me, as always, is Mr. Mike Ortiz. So, what are we fighting about this time, David? Best sci fi movie of all time. Best token minority. Best animated TV series. Listen. If you'd like to add some dialogue to this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. The website has show notes enabled at www.inappropriateconversations.org. Comments can be left there. I also have a presence on Facebook. There's a Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations. I post there fairly regularly. It's the one listed as a cause. And on Twitter, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg, literally at IC underscore Greg. Thanks for listening.